The sermon this afternoon was prepared by Reverend G. Whiskey, Minister Emeritus of the Canadian Reformed Church, Tintern, Ontario. In response to the sermon, we will sing together from Hymn 49, Stanza 1 and 2. Now let us open our Bibles and read the text for the sermon, Job 1, verses 1 through 12. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to take turns holding feasts in their homes, and they would invite their sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would send and have them purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, Perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing, Satan replied? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well. Then everything he has is in your hands. But on the man himself, do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the book of Job is both fascinating and mysterious. Fascinating because it deals with the profound questions to which all of God's children can relate. Questions like how God's sovereignty and omnipotence tie in with the presence and purpose of suffering. Fascinating also in how this book comes to its climax when these two seeming contradictions blend together in the confession that God is good. Always, no matter what happens. And then also mysterious. Although Job is one of the oldest books in the Old Testament, it is often not that well known. Apart from the first two and the last chapter, the rest of the message is quite difficult. Who is this Job? Where does he come from? 
and who are his three friends? And what are they trying to achieve by means of their often long-winded speeches? But brothers and sisters, also of this book we believe what the Church confesses in Article 7 of the Belgic Confession. Namely, that the book of Job fully contains the will of God and that all that a man must believe in order to be saved is sufficiently taught therein. This non-Jewish book, with its elevated and sublime poetic language and its priceless contents, is not just a piece of literary art, but reveals to us the God of heaven and earth, who alone is sovereign and who desires man's salvation. It proclaims to God's people of all times that he cannot be called into account before the judgment seat of our conscience. It stresses that God is God and that man is and remains man. Only by an unconditional surrender to him will we reach our destiny. Only by an implicit trust in his blessed promises will we be assured that God loves us with an eternal love. That is the message of the book of Job. Can God be trusted? Is he worthy of our love, even if our world collapses? When sufferings don't seem to make any sense? When we feel forsaken at times? When many of our questions remain unanswered? This book deals with some of the most fundamental matters of life, and we do well to listen to its message. For when we do, we will be comforted as only God can comfort, and we will receive divine strength and support to continue to live by faith and persevere in whatever we are going through, and so reach the perfection for which God has destined us in his grace, in and through his Son, Jesus Christ. I proclaim to you the gospel of salvation under the theme the Lord accepts Satan's challenge to test Job's faith. Job's situation in this challenge, Satan's motivation for this challenge, and God's purpose with this challenge. Without any introduction, Job appears on the scene as a man who loved God. Who is this Job? And when did he live? The Bible is almost quiet about it. All we are told is that he lived in the land of Uz, most likely on the border of Edom and Arabia, southeast of Canaan. So he wasn't a Jew. He did not belong to the covenant God had established with Abraham and his descendants. That much is certain. But for the rest, we are left in the dark. Most likely, Job lived during the days of the patriarchs, or at least before Israel had conquered Canaan. That becomes reasonably certain from various expressions in the book which reveal an early date. But apparently, this is not important. The Lord didn't deem it necessary to give us these details. What is important is that Job served the Lord. Apparently, this foreigner still knew God from his revelation via the lineage of Shem, the son of Noah. 
just like that other mysterious figure in the Old Testament, Melchizedek, king of Salem and priest of the Most High God. Job knew the Lord and served him with all his heart. He was blameless and upright, says the text. That does not mean that he was without sin. In chapter 13, verse 26, he mentions the sins of his youth. And in chapter 14, 16, he speaks of his transgression. After all, the Bible is quite clear that sinless people do not exist. The Apostle John writes, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And Job himself says in chapter 14, verse 4, Who can bring what is pure from impure? No one. That's enough proof that Job was a sinner like all people. Nevertheless, the Bible gives us a beautiful attestation of this man. He was blameless. That is, he loved the Lord from a sincere heart. No double-dealing, no Sunday Christianity, no pious or not pious in church, but shady and shifty from Monday through to Saturday. Job walked with God. In his whole life, the Lord stood central. And he was upright, a man of integrity, not walking a thin line, but well disposed towards God and his neighbor. In other words, Job feared God. That's one side of being blameless and upright. He was righteous before God, just like Noah, for instance, and later on, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Not a self-worked righteousness, but an imputed righteousness by faith in God's promise of salvation. And he shunned evil. That's the other side. Job's faith did not stand detached from his daily life and work. In his life, faith in God became visible and tangible, as it should be in the lives of all God's children. Some commentators deny that Job was a historical person. They claim that the book was just a legend, a folktale with a profound message. But the book doesn't give us any evidence of this at all. The prophet Ezekiel refers to Job alongside Noah and Daniel as righteous man. And in the letter of James, he is mentioned for his patience as an example to all Christians. No, Job was a real man who lived on the earth at a particular time. God had richly blessed him. Next to a large family, Job was well-to-do. He was a wealthy farmer and a prosperous businessman. He was highly respected by his countrymen, as we read in chapter 29, verse 7. It just goes to show, brothers and sisters, that being wealthy and loving the Lord do not necessarily exclude each other. Though it is true, for, though it is true that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, it is certainly not impossible, says Jesus. Job at least did not trust in his wealth. He wasn't like so many where the monies has them instead of they having the money. His family was not only large, but also very close. His sons and daughters got on well together. There was peace and harmony between them. As young adults, they lived in their own homes, and as children of the wealthiest man around, they had plenty of time and money 
to lead a rather carefree life. They loved to have their parties and organize them in turn, to which all were invited. And together they made merry and enjoyed their life and each other's company. But when the party was over, Job would call them home. As a father who didn't begrudge his children pleasure and entertainment, he also knew his responsibility. As a father, Job was a real priest. He knew from experience that being young and partying can often lead to sin. Not necessarily to open sins, but first of all, to secret sins. Sins of the heart. It comes so easy when you've had a few drinks to become careless and indifferent about the Lord and his will to lead a holy life. Then it can happen that you curse God. Not necessarily blaspheme his name in open defiance, but to say farewell to him. To live independently. To follow your own heart instead of following the Lord who must always be the reason why you live and for whom you live. That's why Job had them purified, says the text. That means then he would commit them to God, dedicate his boys and girls to their creator and redeemer. For in the morning he would rise early and sacrifice ten burnt offerings, one for each of his children. As a symbolic deed, that forgiveness of their sins could only be obtained via blood. In these burnt offerings, which were completely dedicated to God, Job confessed his faith that one day the promised Messiah would sacrifice himself for the sins of his people. What a beautiful attestation the Bible gives us about this man, brothers and sisters. It almost makes you jealous. Next to his busy work schedule, Job did not forget his primary task. He was a father with a heart for his children, not just for their material well-being, but first of all for their spiritual welfare. Job wasn't like many dads who say, my kids don't do that. I can trust my teenagers. Job knew the power and seduction of sin but also the grace of God's forgiveness when those sins are confessed via the sacrifice God had prescribed as a pointer to that one sacrifice of the future offered on the cross where all our sins were punished in the person of our blessed Savior. At the same time, Job wasn't grumpy. He didn't object to his children having fun, but he stayed in touch he didn't look the other way. He was not only concerned about his own peaceful evenings. A father who took his priestly task so seriously would also have discharged his prophetic task painstakingly. He would have made time to talk to his children and teach them that the greatest blessing a person can possess is to be a child of God, to be loved by his heavenly Father, and to lead a life of thankfulness according to his commandments. That was Job's life. And not now and again, but continually, from day to day. Very instructive for us too, beloved, for our family life, our life as parents and children. Do you pray regularly for them? 
Do you purify them before God? That is, in today's language, plead on the blood of Jesus Christ that the Lord may work faith in their heart by the Holy Spirit. And he will forgive their sins. And do you therefore speak with them about God's service and keep in touch? Know where they hang out and who their friends are and aware of what they watch on TV or on the internet. Job, with his busy schedule, Job, as a prosperous farmer, knew his priorities. He knows his God-given responsibility towards his children, with which the Lord had blessed him. Once again, what a beautiful attestation does the Bible give us of this child of God. But Job's attestation has has a special reason, brothers and sisters. It's more than a witness of Job and his life with God. Much more. After all, Job's faith was not self-made. Job's love for God wasn't of his own making. It was the God whom he served who had blessed Job and crowned his own gifts in this child of his for a particular purpose. Not to show off Job, not to boast in a man, but to, but to reveal to all and sundry that God is loved for who he is and not for what he gives, first of all. To teach us that in this sinful world where man has sided with the devil, the Lord works out his promise of the beginning that salvation will be regained that man will be redeemed, that God's creation goal will be reached. This goal, that the Lord is served again by his people, that God is loved again above everything else, simply because he deserves to be loved for his grace and mercy towards sinners. Job doesn't know what awaits him. He is completely in the dark as to what's going to happen. He is a pawn on the chessboard where God and Satan are battling out a struggle between grace and sin, between love and hatred, between life and death. The stakes are high. Will God win or the devil? Will man love God for who he is? Or is faith no more than a piously concealed way of self-interest? paying handsome dividends for our life on earth without any real love, without a desire to rather lose everything than to lose God, to miss out on his love and communion without life, without which life loses all meaning. That is what what we hope to see in our second point. Satan's motivation for his challenge to God to test Job's faith. Suddenly the scene shifts from earth to heaven, from Job's prosperous and blessed life to the heavenly courtroom. Remember, brothers and sisters, that Job is not aware of this. He is completely ignorant of what follows in the rest of the text. It's only much later, when all that's going to happen has taken place, that Job is informed. But right now, he hasn't a clue. Only we may benefit from the outset 
as to what the contents of the book of Job is all about. God pulls up the veil. He allows us a glimpse behind the scenes into that heavenly and spiritual world which is just as real as ours, but which God normally keeps hidden from us. One day, the angels of God are summoned to appear before their creator. It's assembly day, and Satan is one of them. Don't forget, he is a fallen angel. Though filled with hatred against the Lord, he is still God's servant, be it against his will. The Bible doesn't tell us much about this heavenly world. It's the dwelling place of the Most High, where everything speaks of his glory and holiness. However, during the Old Testament dispensation, the devil had free access to heaven. Because, as the accuser of God's children, he could claim that since man's sin had not been paid for, God could not pardon them unless he compromised his justice. That was a reason which allowed Satan to appear in heaven. Once our sins were paid on the cross... The Bible tells us that Satan was cast down from heaven. He no longer has any business there. But right now, it's not that far yet. Just as in Zechariah 3, where Satan accuses the high priest Joshua before God and points out all of his sins. Satan has roamed the earth and comes back with a lot of ammunition to remind the Lord that all his creatures are utterly sinful and deserve nothing else but his righteous judgment. Well, Satan says, God, where have you come from? And when Satan answers that he has made a world tour, an inspection journey, the Lord says with unconcealed pride, Did you pay any attention to my servant Job? Have you seen how he lives? There is no one on the entire earth who serves me as faithfully as he. There is no uneasiness or alarm in God's words. The Lord is certain of his work. Despite the havoc Satan can create, he is and remains a defeated foe, subservient to God, who is sovereign and almighty, without whose will he cannot so much as move. That's what the Church confesses in Lord's Day 10 about all creatures, including Satan. Satan must have felt the irony and sarcasm in God's question. And he almost explodes. No wonder, he replies. Anyone would serve and love you when he gets in return what Job enjoys. You've put a safety fence around him and his family and his possessions. No harm can come to him. And Job knows that very well. Do you really think that he loves you for nothing? Are you honestly of the opinion that Job is interested in you? Do you hear the challenge which Satan hurls at the Lord, brothers and sisters? What he says comes down to Job is only interested in the perks, but he doesn't care for you. Job's faith is phony and fake. His piety is nothing else but self-interest. It's self-preservation which makes Job live as he does. What a demonic accusation. No wonder the devil is called Satan, which means accuser. Imagine if Satan spoke the truth. Try to comprehend if Job's faith was only a varnish. 
that he was more concerned about his prosperous life than about the God who gave him all these blessings. Then God's plan of redemption is one great failure, one big fiasco. If believers are only interested in going to heaven, if a life of obedience to God's commandments has no other motivation but to profit from it, God's original plan for man would never be realized and salvation would not mean a thing. For then God would not receive the love of his creatures, but of his gifts. Then the purpose of his creation, that man should love the Lord above all else, voluntarily and willingly, would be out of the question. And then the coming of Jesus Christ would serve no purpose either. For God doesn't want to be served for the sake of self-interest. He wants our heart. Not for his gifts first, but for his person. In his grace and mercy, he longs to have his love for his children responded to by their love for him. As the God of their salvation. Satan says, sorry God, you misinterpreted Job's faith and devout life. You think that he loves you, but it's purely self-interest, hypocrisy. I dare you. I challenge you to take away Job's blessings, and then you will see something. Then the true Job will reveal himself. Then he will curse you, say goodbye to you. For then your service no longer pays any dividends. Once the perks are gone, Job won't have any time for you anymore. Brothers and sisters, there is a lot at stake here. It's not just Job's faith that is put to the test, but the faith of all of God's children. If Satan is right, God's redemption is a dead end street. It will never reach its divine purpose, that God is loved for who he is and for what he has done and that he is believed for what he says. That serving him doesn't mean that all is rosy and problem-free. The core of salvation, the reason of redemption, is God himself. His glory, his honor, his love, and his grace. Everything else loses its value when that is not present. And Satan knows that very well. He hates God and all that is good. He wants to take as many people as he can with him to hell. He uses every means, even attacking God's work of salvation. After all, Satan is not stupid. Far from it. He knows, as no other, that salvation is by grace. And that faith is a gift of God that nobody loves the Lord unless the Lord comes to them with his love and grace. But he sees no other way out. He knows that he has lost in principle. He can't turn or worm himself out of his doom. And that is why he tries anything, anything at all, to frustrate God's plan of redemption, to ridicule and mock God, who apparently thinks Job loves him for who he is. He challenges God to take up the gauntlet, to put Job's faith 
to the test, a test which is almost unbearable. Satan's deepest interest isn't Job. He doesn't care for the small fry. He uses and abuses them for his own purposes. But he does strike at the heel of the seed of the woman, at the coming Christ. He hopes against hope that Job will prove before the forum of heaven and earth that faith is nothing else but self-preservation. That believers are no more than play actors who go along as long as the going is good. If that can be shown in Job's in the life of Job, then the rest will follow automatically. Then the most Jesus Christ can do is pay for the sins of people who are only interested in going to heaven. But who do not really love the Lord for who he is and for what he has done for them. And if that's to be the case, then everything will be in vain. If God is not loved above all else, salvation is out of the question. And redemption is worthless. At the most, it may seem to be real, but it will never be perfect. For it will never reach the goal which God has set. And that brings us to our last point. The Lord's purpose with this challenge. God takes up the challenge. He accepts Satan's dare. Not only for the sake of Job, but for the sake of all his children. But especially for his own sake. He is going to show once and for all that faith is his gift. And that a life of love and obedience is possible in the sinful world. Not because the sun always shines in the lives of his children. Not because they possess a healthy body, a prosperous business, or a well-paid job, and happy family life. But because they love him. For his goodness and his grace. For his mercy and his sin-forgiving love. For the promise of everlasting blessedness, which will be realized through the suffering and death of his only beloved son. All right, Satan, says God, have your way. I will give Job into your hand. He is in your power, except for his life. You are not going to touch that. His person is out of bounds for you. But for the rest, you can do what you like. You may rob him of all his earthly blessings, strike him with every catastrophe, hurt him wherever you can. And Satan doesn't need to be told twice. Immediately he leaves to start his devilish job. Brothers and sisters, even here, when God gives Job into the hands of his enemy to vindicate himself, to show that he is so certain of his work of grace in the hearts of his elect, that he allows Satan to strike Job with every kind of calamity. Even here, we are comforted. For Satan doesn't get a free reign. He remains under God's control. He can only go as far as the Lord allows him. He is like a vicious dog, but kept on a chain. Without God's permission, Satan cannot even touch God's children. Nevertheless, here we also ask our questions. Was this necessary? Did Job have to suffer so much as the rest of the book tells us? 
But I hope it is clear, beloved, that God has his divine purpose in mind. God never afflicts his children willingly, says the book of Lamentations. That means he doesn't allow them to be hurt as an end in itself. He has his own wise goals when he visits his children with all sorts of sorrows. In Job's case, we are informed about it. No, Job did not know of it. If he had, it would defeat God's purpose. Then he could have played the hero thinking of the reward which God would give him out the outcome of such a cosmic context. The Lord has seen fit to include this book in the Bible so that we should never despair, no matter what happens to us. Oh, that does not mean that this book gives you the answer to all your questions with regard to the sufferings on this earth. The details are and remain hidden for us. God's ways are higher than ours, and his thoughts are not our thoughts. But we may find comfort that whatever happens to us does not happen outside of God's will, who is our Father in Jesus Christ. In Job's case, we are told the details. God has confidence in this child of his and in his faith. Not because Job is so strong, but because Job is what he is by the grace of God. The Lord will prove, will prove to Satan that Job is not a money slave, not a servant of God because of his blessings. God has confidence in his plan of salvation, which will be realized in his son, Jesus Christ. That's why he takes on Satan's challenge. For Job's righteousness, Job's love for the Lord was rooted in the coming Christ. It was for his sake that God would display in Job's life that true love for the Lord, which can be found here on earth, not as a product of man, but as a result of the love of the new man who, who obeyed his father down to the smallest detail, who was bereft of every blessing when he hung on that cursed cross, but who never let go of his God, not even when Satan fired his whole arsenal of weapons at the man of sorrows. In other words, God was so certain of his servant Job that he accepted the challenge to once and for all comfort all his children that salvation is by grace alone, no matter what happens. God holds on to those who trust him. The Lord wants to expose Satan's lie that people only serve God in a self-interest. The rest of the book will go into more details as to how Job reacted to it all and what happened to him and how God vindicated himself and his work of redemption over against the slander of Satan in the life of his servant Job. I know we are no Job's, but we have the same God, beloved, who does not change. Also today, he has his wise purposes when he visits his children with sufferings and heavy burdens. We don't know all the answers. There are many questions we carry with us to the grave. Why this sorrow? Why this terminal illness? Why this handicap? Why did our son or daughter turn their back to the Lord? 
Why don't our loved ones repent? Does the Lord not know of our heart-wrenching agonies? Why does God not intervene? And then it's only one step to the next set of questions. Who really is in control? Does God really care? Is he powerless to make change in my life? Doesn't he know that it sometimes becomes too much for me to bear? If that is the case, beloved, let us then turn to the book of Job. Not to hear ready-made answers to every question we struggle with, but to hear what we need to hear. Namely this, God is in control. Satan cannot touch us if he doesn't permit him. But we also hear more. God has his divine purposes with all that takes place, also in our lives. In Job, Job's case must serve as the answer for all other cases, since God is sovereign and created man for his own glory. And also your burdens and sufferings have their proper place within God's inscrutable counsel. Even the burdens and the sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ, even when on Golgotha, humanly speaking, all looked lost and salvation seemed forever out of reach. But exactly when the whole world, in the company with demons, were ready to shout their victory song, God vindicated himself precisely in the events which Satan had orchestrated. And that victory of life over death, of grace over guilt, of love over hatred, and of salvation over condemnation was the basis of God's vindication in Job's life. God knew that Job would remain faithful to him because God remained faithful to Job for Christ's sake. Just as it is your guarantee also that your life will be shown one day not to have been made a mistake, but that it serves to vindicate our Lord, who draws his praise and love out of the mouth of all of his children. Not only when the sky is cloudless, not just when prosperity and health are enjoyed, but also in days of tension in days of unanswered questions, of sickness and grief, of mourning and approaching death. For God is worthy of our love because of who he is and because of what he has done for all who love him. His grace, his mercy, his comfort, and his compassion displayed in the gift of his only son who paid for all of our sins. That shows us who God is, our God, and our Father, who can't wait till all his children are home, to praise and thank him for the inexpressible gift of his love, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.